After two weeks of a break for me, we're back in Romans chapter 12. And um, I'm going to set up the idea of what's going on in Romans chapter 12 in a couple of different ways. Um, Let me just summarize and say Romans chapter 12, like Romans chapter 8, is one of those chapters we've spent a lot of time in. It's one of those very, very significant chapters. All of God's Word is inspired, but there are some that that seem to just um, apply themselves more specifically. And Romans 12 is, is one of those passages. In Romans 12, there's Uh, kind of this flow where you're supposed to look up and see what God's doing. You look inside, see how he's transforming you, and and you look inside yourself to see um, how he's made you, and then you look around to see how you can um, serve others, and then you look outside the church and say, what kind of a witness are we we being? And that's really uh, where we are today, this last section on um, how we can be a great witness. Um, Romans chapter 12 is super practical, (laughs) Uh, in fact, it, it, you could just look at it as a big, long list of here's a bunch of things that are responding to the already present grace of God. He has talked about God's grace and God's trustworthiness for 11 chapters. And then in chapter 12, he says, and here's how we respond to all of that. I've given you some resources. I haven't been uh, up here for the last couple of weeks, and so I've uh, got an abundance of resources, a couple by Frank Thielman. Uh, that really pull the the whole chapter together. Um, There's one really practical one there on love in the body of Christ by Chuck Swindoll, and then uh, one realistic one by Chuck Swindoll on um, what do you do when somebody's done you wrong? And and all of that has to do with these topics within chapter uh, 12. But as we move to the last section of chapter 12, we're looking at verses 14 to 21. Um, Again, Paul has kind of made this move Uh, through the chapter from um, how God deals with us individually and then how as individuals we fit within the church and and how we can bless those around us. And then he makes this turn towards how we interact with the world outside. And next week in chapter 13, he's going to say even how we relate to the government. But as he, he makes this turn to how we interact with the world outside, it, it, has raised um, a connection for me. Um, Over the last 20 years, I have been an an avid uh, listener to Mars Hill audio tapes. Uh, You can see this is number 150. When I first started listening to Mars Hill audio, they were tapes, cassette tapes. Uh, And then they transitioned to CDs. And then they uh, have now gone to MP3s. I eventually had to get rid of the CDs. They were all archived, but I had to get rid of the cassette tapes because I had no place to play them. Um, I couldn't listen to them again if I wanted to. Um, I've been listening to Mars Hill uh, tapes for a long time. Uh, And here's, here's, let me give you just a summary. I'll be a little bit more specific in a moment. Mars Hill Audio is what it is now. It used to be Mars Hill Tapes. Mars Hill Audio um, is run by a guy named Ken Myers. Um, he has a very um, NPR voice. He used to be a voice for NPR. Conservative Christian, and he really is talking about the intersection of Christianity and, and culture and society. How I would describe this in the past is he's the one guy out there who's going to talk about um, what Christians should think about in terms of whether your neighborhood has sidewalks or not. And he's going to say, whether your neighborhood has sidewalks or not is an important issue 
because it creates community. It gives you the opportunity to, to be loving to people, to be a witness, and he's going to get down to that level of should your neighborhood have a sidewalk. Um, you'll get a little bit of a taste of, of both ends of this just by looking at the most current edition, which is uh, number 150. And, and he's got um, a guy named David Smith on how Christian schools can make wise decisions about the use of educational technologies. Eric O. Jacobson on how living in a world mediated by screens encourages loneliness. Listen to this one. Matthew Crawford on how the promise of self-driving cars threatens the capacities of agencies enabled by driving. I mean, (laughs) who would have known a Christian should be thinking about um, this? I mean, we kind of all, when he says, you know, all that time on screen makes you lonely, you go, yeah. And he's going, that's a Christian concern. Um, self-driving cars. I haven't listened to this one, but self-driving cars is somehow pretty important for Christians. And if I were to listen to it, I would, I would probably go, yeah, I need to be thinking more about that. But just so you don't get, it's not just all about sidewalks and screen time. Listen to the last one, Andrew Davidson, on how the metaphysical concept of participation helps us understand God's relationship with creation and with us. Um, I'll listen to that one twice and still probably won't understand exactly what's going on. But Mars Hill Audio is for 20 years, uh, been a reflection of something that I think is coming more and more into focus as we in the United States move away from a Christian worldview being dominant. Uh, We are quickly and rapidly moving away from that. The, The Christian worldview is not the dominant worldview anymore, particularly in cultural um, expressions of it. And so what that has done is, is it created what recently has gotten the label. Um, it, it's called cultural apologetics. Um, about six years ago, I did a series on apologetics, traditional apologetics, though, um, arguing for the existence of God, the problem of evil, the trustworthiness of Scripture, um, defending the truth of the Christian worldview and defending it more in a kind of a rationalistic sense. And, and we talked about the need to be nice when we do that and all of that. But recently there's been um, the, the real focus on this idea of cultural apologetics, which I'm going to call here just to orient you to it, gaining a hearing for the truth of the Christian worldview. It's not defending it. It's not saying, can you answer the questions when objections are raised? The question is, does anybody want to listen to you? Do you live in such a way that you gain a hearing that somebody would say, you're living well, I'd like to understand what's behind all of that. Um, I'm going to use Ken Myers to introduce this a little bit and then continue to talk and focus in. Ken Myers says this, traditional apologetics is concerned with making arguments to defend Christian truth claims and has often addressed challenges to Christian belief coming from philosophical and more intellectual sources. The term cultural apologetics has been used to refer to a systematic effort to advance the plausibility of Christian claims in light of the messages communicated through dominant culture institutions, including films, popular music, literature, art, and the mass media. So traditional apologetics kind of engages on a rational philosophical level. Cultural apologetics is dealing much more with the culture and what the culture is trying to say. He makes it a little bit more clear when he says this. So while, cultural, while traditional apologists would critique the challenges of the Christian faith advanced in the writings of certain philosophers, cultural apologists might look instead at the soundbite philosophies embedded in the lyrics of popular songs, 
the plots of popular movies, or even the slogans in advertising. Have it your way. You deserve a break today. Just do it. How, how, is that really a good way to look at life, those, those slogans that come out of it? Uh, one of the leaders in this field is Paul Gould, and he defines it this way. Cultural apologetics is the work of establishing the Christian voice, conscience, and imagination within a culture so that Christianity is seen as true and satisfying. It's not defending it. We, we need to be able to still do traditional apologetics and, and give a reason for the faith that we have. But the question is, do we live in such a way that people would look at it and say, well, Christianity, it, it's true and it's satisfying. It's actually, I'm, I'm attracted to it. My definition of apologetics would go like this. Uh, it's gaining a hearing for the truth of the Christian worldview in general and the gospel message in particular, by living in such a way that the gospel is both plausible and attractive. And in order to do that, we, we can't afford to just um, hole up within the church and just love each other well and be done with it. In order to do that, we have to interact with those outside the church in a way that is appealing, and, and uh, I'm going to use a word that I've used before. We live in such a winsome way that people are attracted and they want to hear about the truth of the gospel. And when we say the gospel is a better way to live, and they look at our lives and they say, yeah, I think that's true, you look like you're living a better life than me. It, it's how we live in the culture. Cultural apologetics, I, I want you to get a sense it's a thing, okay? Cultural apologetics is a thing. How do we connect um, to the world? And, and there are certain things that are going on, the, on in the world that we need to connect with, and we need to say, um, yeah, we have something to say about that, or that highlights something that is deeply true in our worldview. But as Charlie said, and as this passage before us is going to say, the, the primary th- way that we make Christianity seem plausible, attractive, and viable is not in how we present it in our articulation. It's how we live it in our lives. And that's exactly what is going on in this passage at the end of Romans chapter 12. So let me take you through Romans 12 for just a little bit. Um, here's, Here's my summary of the whole chapter. The transformed life of the Christian community functions fully, cares well for itself, and provides a winsome witness to the world. The transformed life of the community, and and it's not individuals in this sense. It really is the transformed life of the community. As we as a community of believers live in a different way, and we all function the way God has created us to function using our gifts, we care for one another well, and we provide a witness to the world that is attractive to them. Now, I'm emphasizing community here. And again, I'm going to quote from a woman whose name is Marva Dawn, who just passed away a couple of years ago. But she wrote an entire book on Romans chapter 12 called Truly the Community. Um, it is a fantastic book on how, to, how, how a community should function. Um, but the, the whole idea of Romans chapter 12 is it's about community, not individuals. And I know we often read it very individualistically. But the whole chapter is full of plural commands. Okay? The commands aren't individualistic. Um, um, it's not resist. 
It's you all resist, okay? The whole book is a y'all, okay? A whole chapter is a y'all, okay? So if you're from the South, it's a y'all. The whole chapter is y'all do this. Would y'all live this way? Now, if you're from the North, it's you guys. Would you guys live this way? Um, uh, Apparently, in in some places in Pittsburgh, it's Ewan's. So if you're from Pittsburgh, we got some folks from Pittsburgh over there, don't we? Ewan's. Ewan's need to live this way. Um, There are some people in Kentucky who say you all, apparently, and then there are parts of uh, people who in New York and a few other places say Ewan's. For us, y'all, y'all, this is how we're supposed to live. That's what this chapter is all about. It's a plural thing. It's how our community looks. Because we can have individuals who may look this way. That doesn't have nearly the impact as a community of people who are seen when they say, y'all, those people over at Fellowship, they love well. They live well. It's a y'all. That is what we're talking about here. And so what he has said is this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, y'all present your bodies as living sacrifices, wholly acceptable unto God, which is you in reasonable service of worship. And and y'all don't be conformed to the world, but y'all be transformed by renewing your minds so that you may test and prove what the will of God is, which is good and acceptable and perfect. Y'all resist and renew and prove. Resist the world, renew your mind, and prove what God's will is by living it out. This is that kind of upward look. You get it straight with God. And then he says, and then figure out who you are and how you fit into the community. For through the grace given to me, I say to every one of y'all, do not think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each one of y'all the measure of faith. For just as we have many parts in one body and all the body's parts do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually parts of one another, y'all. However, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to use them properly. If prophesy in proportion to our faith, if service in the act of service, or the one who teaches in the act of teaching, or the one who exhorts in the work of exhortation, the one who gives with generosity, the one who is in leadership, with diligence, the one who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Y'all know who you are and how you function. And y'all need to be trusting God and giving yourself to each other. That's what he says. <laughs> then last week, uh, Shane talked about this idea of, of, of how we take care of one another. And again, it's a plural command. Y'all, love must be <laughs> free of hypocrisy. Y'all detest what is evil and cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Y'all, love one another, serve one another, help one another. This is how the community should look. Get it straight with God, figure out who you are and how you fit, fit, and then live that way in the community. Because when that happens, when that community looks that way, And think about it, if all of us were doing that really, really well, if all of us were resisting the the push of the world and we were renewing our minds with the word of God 
and it was shaping how we lived, and we were giving ourselves to one another in the way that we know God's gifted us and enabled us and shaped us and given us passions to give, that we were giving to one another, not requiring everybody to give to me, but I was given to one another. Think about what the kind of community we would have if our love was without agendas, if we really did um, see ourselves as one body and we were taking care of one another. Think about how that would look to a watching world. He's going to go on and say this as he, I think, turns the corner. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and don't curse. Y'all rejoice with the one who rejoices and weep with the ones who weep. Be of the same mind towards one another. Don't be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Don't be wise in your own estimation. Never repay evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all people. And if possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. So don't be overcome by evil. But you guys, y'all, you and overcome evil with good. That's how we as a community should be functioning. So I'm going to look through this, and we're going to see how the gospel, if, if we really embrace the grace of the gospel and an awareness of God's sovereignty, if we embrace those two things, it frees us up to have better relationships and make better choices when the choices are hard. So first of all, in verses 14 and 6 through 16, we're going to see this, that the gospel transforms our relationships. A transforming experience of the grace of God. If you really understand God's grace and that he loved you while we were enemies, a transforming experience of God's grace frees us to live with humility and in harmony with others, even if they're opposed to us. Now, what this is doing is this is basically saying we should work hard to get along with one another inside the church. But when we look outside the church, um, we can't even really expect people to get along with us because we have such a radical, different worldview. Um, and that makes it hard. Chuck Swindoll raises the issue here. Let's be honest. We all have people we don't like, and there are probably more who don't like us. We want to believe they're absent from our thoughts, but like phantoms, they haunt us when we are fatigued or lonely or discouraged. Or for me, breathing. <laughs> it's frustrating because we presented ourselves as living sacrifices, yet the sinful actions of another person tempt us to crawl off the altar and get some much-deserved revenge. This can be just momentary with the person who doesn't know how to go through the roundabout. And you're just like, oh, you know, I, just, I wish they'd just pull over and so I could just tell them, you know, here's how you do this in a good moment. Or, you know, <laughs> I resist. Yeah, I always have resisted. Honking the horn really loud, constantly. Um, it may be momentarily something that wells up, but it, it could also be that person who, who, who haunts you. And you kind of keep it down, and, and, and you kind of know, don't, just don't even think about them. Don't, just don't think of them. But then, 
you know, you see something that brings it up and you just go, ugh. Lord, I pray that you would teach them a lesson. Um, I mean, we know that. This is just such a realistic passage, okay? We're not, we're not, we're not playing around here. This isn't, I'm not using words like atonement and propitiation. I'm using words like people you don't like, people who are opposed to you, people who make your life difficult. Here's what the passage says. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. That's how, if we have a renewed mind, we have a safe community, we relate to the people outside of us, is we, we want to bless them, not curse them. And, and Paul is quoting Jesus all through this section. Here, here's Jesus' version of this in Matthew 5. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In Luke 6, but I say to you, um, I say to you here, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who are abusive to you. Love them, bless them, pray for them. Boy, in, in some seasons of my life, it is praying for the people who haunt me in that way, the people who just have made life difficult for me. It's when I have prayed for them that... Um, after I pray for imprecatory psalms, by the way, there's a whole category in the psalms called imprecations. It's the parts of the psalms that, that are, you know, may jackals carry away their children in the middle of the night for your glory, God. They're, I mean, <laughs> uh, when I move through the imprecation and go, is that really what I want? I actually end up in a better place with the person if I'll just pray for them. Um. And we're not getting persecuted real significantly right now. I'm talking about difficult to get along with people, people that we view as kind of our enemies, people who've made hard, who oppose us. That, that's what I'm talking about now. But this is not out of the realm of possibility that there's going to be much more intense persecution of Christians in the, in the times to come. And that fits so perfectly with Romans because when Paul is writing Romans, Nero is on the throne, and he's an okay ruler, but that's about ready to change because in five years, there's going to be event, an event in Rome that changes everything. Lynn Kohick describes it. In AD 64, a great fire burned for six days and seven nights, consuming 70, roughly 70% of the city of Rome. According to the historian, historian Tacitus, it began in the circus, the market, and quickly um, spread through the overcrowded wooden structures, creating havoc and destruction. The people blamed Nero, who deflected their accusations onto the Christians, brutally killing many. This fire in Rome resulted in the persecution in significant, significant ways of the Christian community. It's five years after Paul's writing what he's writing here in Romans chapter 12. I don't know what's going to happen from five, in five years from now. I don't know what Christians may or may not get blamed for. But I know we're moving in the direction of Christianity becoming less and less popular and more and more opposed. And so the question is, are we living our lives in such a way that people are actually drawn to it? Or is it, are there places where we need to be offensive? Um, Marva Dawn in her book, excellent book, by the way, Truly the Community, I, I highly recommend it. She asked this question, is our faith life active enough to arouse persecution or have we simply been offensive? Um, are you are you seen as different in a way that's worthwhile, or are you just different because you're weird and you're 
you're kind of a pain. Um, how are you living your life? And, and this passage would tell us, live your life in such a lovely, wonderful way that people kind of feel guilty because you're doing so well. Um, not only do we pray for them and we bless them rather than cursing them, but the passage says this, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And there's some debate as to whether Paul's moving back to within the community. I think it, it works both ways. Within the community, yes, let's pray for one another and rejoice with one another. But gosh, wouldn't this be a great testimony if even outside the community, we were seen as the people who weep with those who weep and who rejoice with those who rejoice? It's one of the reasons that um, I'm so glad that we have a partnership with Samaritan's Purse, of which Operation Christmas Child is a small part, because Samaritan's Purse is, is such a broad ministry that goes into disaster-ridden places to, to weep with people who are weeping. They go into to hospital situations and, and really, boy, just such a, a broad reach of, of God's hand out there into the world. Um, Frank Thielman paraphrases it this way. Believers should not be self-absorbed, but empathetic with the joys and sorrows of others. Um, putting it in the contrast, not self-absorbed. <laughs> um, not so worried about your own self and, and bringing everything back to your story and everything is about what's going on with you, that you're able to lay that aside and you're able to d figure out who's weeping out there, who's rejoicing out there, and you're able to connect with them because they are, because you're not so important. He's going to say we embrace a life of humility and harmony. Be of the same mind toward one another. Don't be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. This is just a review of what he said in verses 3 through 8. Don't think you're something when you're not. Don't think you're more than you are, but again, don't think that you're less than you are. You are a perfectly fitted part of the body of Christ. And what that should do is allow you to bless everybody around you. It means you're not using other people. If I'm comfortable with who I am, I don't have to use other people to get affirmation or encouragement. Um, if I'm comfortable and, and I'm truly finding uh, my value in who God has made me and I'm living that out, um, th then I'm going to be okay. And I won't have to use and manipulate you to get something from you to help me be okay. So... <laughs> Think about other people as um, they're valued. They're valued in, in, in God's world. And, and, and they're, I'm going to make it today more important than me. And, and I'm going to allow myself to associate with people who, who may not be on my same par, who may be needy. And I'm going to keep a, a wise perspective. Again, Frank Thielman says it this way. Believers should not view themselves as better than others, but should instead identify with the plight of the poor and the dispossessed. People who, who aren't getting along well, who aren't making it well. The people who are needy, the people who are in difficult circumstances, we reach out to them. Rather than saying, as Christians, we've got it better. We've got it all figured out, so I'm not going to get my hands dirty over there. when we really understand the grace of the gospel, that, that God loved me while I was his enemy, it frees me up to say, I'll love my enemies too. Those who, who haunt me, those who persecute me, those who are opposed to me, those who are lower than me, I, I, it frees me up to say, I understand the grace of God so I can go and bless those people. 
and minister to those people and love them well. The gospel also changes our choices. And this really has to do with letting things be in God's hands. A, transforming embrace, a transformed embracing of the sovereignty of God frees us to live at peace with others and leave justice in God's hands. If we really understand that, that God is sovereign, and this is a huge part of what Romans 9 through 11 is all about, God's going to set it all right. I don't have to. It doesn't mean I don't want to, but I don't have to, so I can choose to not do it. Um, we choose appropriate responses instead of retaliation. Never repay evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all people. Uh, Doug Moo sets it up this way. He says, though redeemed and citizens of heaven, but believers still live in a world soaked in evil. We must battle constantly against the tendency to conform our behavior to this world. But more than the purely negative quality of resistance to evil is needed, God calls us to be active in using the grace of the gospel and the power of the Spirit to win victory over the evil of this world. We make choices in this sin-soaked world that, that put us in the position of making an impact because not only are we resisting evil, but we are living out a compelling and an attractive way to live our lives. He says, never repay evil uh, for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all people. Don't repay evil for evil. Again, he's quoting Jesus in two places here. Uh, in Matthew 5 and Luke, number, Luke 6, he, he's quoting Jesus. I'm just going to read Luke 6. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other. Whoever takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic from him. When someone takes advantage of you, the way to respond is not to get even. The way to respond is to bless them. Um, this is what we're called to do. It's what we're, how we're called to live. And he's going to tell them, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. This is those people who haunt you, who make life difficult, who oppose you, who are cursing you. Um, live at peace with them if it's possible. Um, now, it's not always possible. But it's probably more possible more often than we think. Frank Thielman says, it goes this way, uh, believers must stay true to the gospel and what is right. But if these are not at stake, they should make every effort to avoid conflict and encourage the well-being of everyone in their society. Live at peace with everybody when you can. If the stakes are not high, if it's something you can get along with, get along with people. I, I don't know what, what kind of things this, this means for you, but get along with people. Tom Schreiner says, one of the marks of a Christian is a winsome and friendly spirit that delights in peace and harmony, not arguments and divisions. Nonetheless, Paul recognizes that the goal of peace with all people cannot be realized perfectly. Get along with people. Now, you can't always do that, but we should be seen as people who can get along with people. And, and this is getting more and more difficult to, to carve ourselves out as a witness in the world. Um, because the media is portraying Christians, um, and there's a huge movement that 
to, to move away from even using evangelical Christians because evangelical has been associated with things we're, we're not necessarily wanting to associate. We're just Christ followers. I don't know if that's where we're going to land, but, but we're Christ followers. We're Bible believers. We're, we're a community that takes care of itself and, and wants to live in peace with other people. Now, you can't always do that. When, when, when can you not do that? Here, I'm going to give you two reasons you can't live at peace with other people. When accommodation violates the truth of the gospel or the will of God. Live at peace with all people. Um, we'll talk about this a little bit more next week. When, when the government permits evil, we should um, oppose it, but still follow the government. When the government commands evil, we have to resist and say no. We have to disobey. Um, so when, when the accommodation that you have to make to live at peace with others is opposed to the gospel or the will of God, don't go along with it. That's the first exception. The second exception is when others don't want peace. Some people just don't want peace with you. Don't, don't keep banging your head against the wall. If they don't want peace, then, then give it up. And, and then don't, okay, they don't want peace, so let's fight. No, just they don't want peace, so just walk away. But if those two things are not in place, if somebody really wants peace with you, and this isn't an issue of the gospel or the will of God, then go with it. And how can you do that? It, well, it's when you leave justice in God's hands. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says, says the Lord. Let God get even with people. And I don't know that this is quite a biblical attitude, but he'll be better at it than me. My vengeance is probably not nearly as creative as his. I don't have as big of a stick as he has. Let me stick with the scriptures. Leave whatever vengeance God wants in his hands. Um, Tom Schreiner Two things, I, I love how he says this. The text suggests that believers will not be able to conquer feelings of revenge unless we know that ultimately there is justice and that God will set all accounts right. You, you just, you're not going to get over that feeling of, I've got to set it right. I've got to get it even. This can't be. I can't let this stay unless you're able to say, I'm not going to do it because I'm going to let God do it. He expands on that when he says this. We would fall prey to retaliation in the present. If we do not know that God will vindicate us in the future, thus the recognition that God will judge our enemies is crucial for overcoming evil with good. Believers can leave the fate of their persecutors in God's hands, knowing that he is good and just and that he does all things well. When you want to get even, don't. Let God do it. He will in his timing. Maybe not the way you want, maybe not in the timing you want, but he will make things right. He gives you the positive. But if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. And in so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. When, when somebody is opposed to you, be kind to them. Um, be nice to the people who are opposing you. And, and he says, because in doing that, you're, you're, you're heaping burning coals on their head. There's a couple of possible meanings of what this is. This is a quote of uh, Proverbs 25. Um, but it, it could mean that they feel shame. Burning coals is when you're, they're, they're opposing you, they're persecuting you, um, and, and you're kind back to them, that they feel shame for what they're doing. 
Or maybe it will lead them to repentance. Or maybe it is you're kind to them and they're not being kind to you. And it just highlights God saying, got to judge that person. So either they're going to feel shame for what they're doing, they're going to repent, or God's really going to judge them. Here's the deal. Any of options, fine with me. I don't care. (laughs) If there's someone who's opposing me, if I've got an enemy out there, if I'll just be nice to them, I'm fine if they feel shame. That's good. I'm, I'm good with that. I'm fine if they repent and they say, I'm going to stop doing this. And actually, I'm fine if all it is is God's going to just judge them anymore and just said, listen, I got to judge you for what you did. And remember, he was even kind to you. Turns up the heat a little bit more. I'm okay with any of those. Ultimately, I hope they would come to repentance because this passage is going to end this way. Do not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We need to live in a world where our good behavior becomes so attractive that, that people want a piece of it, that they see that's the successful way to live. Tell me how you're able to negotiate through these things. Finally, John Stott puts the whole thing together. What a comprehensive picture of Christian love Paul gives us. Love is sincere, discerning, affectionate, and respectful. It's both enthusiastic and patient, both generous and hospitable, both benevolent and sympathetic. It is marked by both harmony and humility. Christian churches would be happier communities if we all loved one another like this. If we practiced Romans 12, not being conformed to the world, but renewing our minds and being conformed to the image of Christ, knowing who we are and using our gifts well, not thinking we're more important or not thinking we're not important at all, loving and caring and taking care of one another and being a winsome witness to the world, we would be a community that would be thriving within and attractive to those without. The church before a watching world needs to allow the depths of the gospel of grace to transform your relationships so that a watching world sees a winsome witness by how you live, by how we treat each other, and how we interact with the world. So a couple of next steps. In this very non-theoretical, very practical chapter of Romans 12. Bless everyone because you've been blessed by God. If you're wondering, how can I bless that person? You were God's enemy and he graciously loved you. Bless the people around you because you've been blessed by God. Secondly, fully trust God to set things right in his time. Give it up. You don't have to teach everyone how to drive through the circles. You don't have to do it. You don't have to get even with that person at work. You don't have to get even with that family member. You don't have to make sure everything is equitable within your family. God's going to set everything right ultimately. And overcome opposition with a winsome witness of God's grace. Live in such a way that people are drawn to you, not repelled by you, not confronted by you, 
but they are blessed by you and loved by you. And what they see in you is a person who is peacefully letting God handle the big things. And y'all, let's live that way.